Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to uh, your session on paediatric cardiac arrhythmias. Uh, my name is Brian McCrossan. I'm one of the paediatric cardiologists here in Belfast. Just an overview of paediatric arrhythmias. They can either be too fast or too slow. Uh, within <clears throat> tachyarrhythmias, uh, the easiest way to classify them is into narrow complex or broad complex, which for the most part uh, corresponds to supraventricular tachycardia compared with a ventricular tachyarrhythmia. Um, but we'll, we'll talk through some of the subtleties of, of that as well. When they're too slow, uh, is there sinus node dysfunction, something again in the atria versus something at the AV node or below? This is really just for your reference. So types of supraventricular tachycardia, what we mean are any arrhythmia which is fast and originating, originating at or above the AV node. And uh, they can be automatic or they can be re-entry. When we say automatic, what we mean is that uh, they uh, are, are, are under the control of adrenaline <clears throat> and um, therefore they warm up and, and, and cool down, whereas uh, re-entry tachycardias tend to turn on and turn off. Um, so re-entry tachycardias can be within the atria, like atrial fibrillation or atrial flutter, or they can involve the AV node. And when we think of SVT, really what we usually mean is AVRT, atrioventricular re-entry tachycardia, which, is, which goes along with Will Parkinson-White syndrome, or atrioventricular nodal re-entry tachycardia. And that's more common in the second decade of life. AVRT would be by far and away the most common um, <clears throat> type of SVT in uh, children under the age of 10. Uh, the least common of these is permanent uh, junctional reciprocating tachycardia. I only put that in for reference. You're, you're unlikely to come across it. And in the, in the automatic tachycardias, sinus tachycardia is by far and away the most common, but it's also important to understand um, and to appreciate ectopic atrial tachycardia. So just to get straight down to some um, clinical cases, um, you're in the emergency department in a five-month-old baby presents with a 48-hour history of pallor, shortness of breath, and poor feeding. And like everything <clears throat> in infants, it's, it's all to do with the feeding as being, a, you know, as being an important sign and symptom of things. So looking at the ECG, you can see that it's fast. It's going about 230 beats per minute. Um, it's regular. For the whole, it, 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 you know, on, on the whole, it looks narrow complex. In V1, you get the impression of some inter, in, intraventricular conduction delay, but on the whole, it looks narrow complex. Uh, and looking closely at it, it's difficult to see definite P waves as well. So you would think to yourself, well, it's over 220 beats per minute. That's a good rule of thumb that uh, tachycardia over 220 beats per minute is, is much less likely to be sinus tachycardia. Um, and the patient's symptomatic and it's narrow complex. This is likely to be atrioventricular reentry tachycardia. And we'll come to the treatment of that a bit later. Whereas a seven-year-old boy comes along, he's been feeling dizzy, um, which had one episode of that, and he still thought he would go to the that he'd go to the emergency department. But you do his ECG, and you see this, and what you can see is that it's in sinus rhythm. There's a P wave uh, before each QRS complex. P P P P. Um, the rates what one two three four five. You know, maybe somewhere in the in the, in the high sixties uh, beats per minute. A little bit on the low side, but it, but it's okay. Um, but what you do notice is that you have a short peer interval 
and sloping of the QRS complex. So this is you know, barn door WPW, uh, but has this caused his presyncope? Well, I think at the age of seven or eight, you probably could give a reasonable, um, a, a reasonable history of palpitations if this was causing the presyncope, i.e. the presyncope in the setting of WPW should be caused by SVT. WPW by itself is not gonna cause many symptoms. So it's not that this patient needs, needs any immediate treatment, or brought in to hospital necessarily, uh, and I'm sure an outpatient holter monitor and referral to pediatric cardiology would be enough with some safety net advice. Whereas in this instance, we have a much more abnormal looking ECG, and the history itself, your know, we called baby, goes along to their GP for their vaccines check. Uh, sorry, for, um, for their vaccines. And when the GP checks, the, um, uh, as I listen to the heart, he feels that it's irregular and it's very fast. And indeed, he is right about that. So you can see that at its fastest, there's about one box between the, between the two RR intervals. And um, you know, so you're talking about a rate of close to 300 at times. But it is irregular, even when it's fast. You know, it's not just as fast here. And it slows down to considerable extent here, maybe 130, 140 beats per minute. Um, but it, as I said, it, it's irregular. It's narrow complex, though. And you can see some P waves going on here as well. So it, it, it is a tricky one to figure out exactly what's happening here. So what, what would help you make the diagnosis? Well, you know, you're on the narrow complex tachycardia end of things. Is sinus tachycardia? Is it atrial fibrillation? Very uncommon. Atrial flutter? Possibility. Is it atrioventricular reentry tachycardia? <clears throat> a bit less likely considering that it is um, irregular. So what, what could it be? And what would help you make the diagnosis? Well, you could give a dose of adenosine. You were sort of itching to do that anyway, probably. Um, but adenosine in this case here is not going to be therapeutic but it might be diagnostic. By blocking the AV node, you've uncovered the atrial activity. And what we can see here are um, two P waves for every QRS complex. So what we have is, um, uh, is an ectopic atrial tachycardia, um, and you've induced two to one AV block by, by giving the adenosine. Um, um, so the difference between, it, between this and atrial flutter would be atrial flutter would be more likely not to give you a gap here. It would be, be constant um, atrial activity, much more sawtooth. So this patient will go back into an ectopic atrial tachycardia after a few seconds, having given the adenosine, because the adenosine will not treat the ectopic atrial tachycardia. It will just block the AV node. Next case, you have a newborn baby who pitches up to the emergency department who's very sick. They're edematous, they're poorly perfused, and there's, there's not much history to be had from the, from the parents here. Uh, there was no antenatal care. Um, and what you can see here is, um, again, irreg irregularity in the heart rate, but at times it's very fast, 300 beats per minute, um, and it's narrow complex. So we're on the narrow complex part of the tachycardia um, uh, uh, algorithm. But um, you can see here constant uh, sawtooth uh, atrial activity. So this is, this is atrial flutter uh, with a variable AV block. The reason why these patients uh, um, are often very sick at time of presentation, so this is, it's an uncommon, but, it, but it's more common than you think in newborns, because this, this is the one time uh, when, when, it, when it's uh, likely to present. And actually the treatment at the newborn period is likely to be curative but they can be very sick because this, you know, especially in the newborn period, this is likely to have been going on for hours, if not days on end, antenatally. And because the placenta does all the work 
um, or most of the work for the heart and the lungs, they cope with that okay. But then when they come out, um, they're not able to cope. And indeed, they may already have been um, quite, the heart and cardiac function may already be relatively poor um, uh, during, during fetal life. Um, but, but the treatment for this is, is a DC cardioversion, synchronized DC cardioversion is basically curative for this. And um, you would um, put them on, well, I like to put them on um, digoxin afterwards. This is just for your reference again, but I find that I find this very useful in terms of differentiating the different types of, of SVT. So what is the treatment? Uh, so you've, you've recognized the rhythm, you've looked at the patient, and the first question is, what is the rhythm? So you have no problems with that now. Second question, well, what antiarrhythmic do I give? That's not the second question. The second question is, how urgent is the treatment? Is there evidence of shock? Less than that, is there evidence of congestive heart failure? The patient got a few symptoms, or are they actually very well looking? How long have they been in SVT? Um, the symptoms and the patient's condition will be determined by the duration of the SVT, how fast the heart rate is, and especially if there's any underlying conge uh, um, congenital heart disease or if they've got cardiac dysfunction as well. So the initial treatment is covered very well by uh, the APLS guidelines. And so I've, I've, I've provided those there. So whether they're in shock, whether they're congestive heart failure, whether there are no other symptoms and they're well looking, all of those eventualities are covered by the, um, by the APLS guideline. Um, so um, of note, um, in terms of vehicle maneuvers, in an infant, I would certainly try an ice pack to the face. It's worthwhile actually, if you can go and see that being done by somebody who knows how to do it. Uh, because if you just set the ice pack on the face, it'll do nothing. You actually really need to smother the patient, but obviously you can't be too enthusiastic about that. Otherwise you might, uh, you know, A and B come before C and you might cause more harm than, than you intended to. But actually it's, um, it, it's something once you've, once you've seen it being done, it's not difficult to do and it, it can be as effective as adenosine. Other vehicle maneuvers, which I'm sure you're well aware of, would be uh, popping your ears by, by uh, covering over your nose and trying to blow out your ears. Doing a handstand is a, is, is a less well-known one. Uh, drinking something very cold or, 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 or an ice lolly um, or you know, blowing through a brown paper bag or, or, or through a straw, uh, something like that. But uh, you come to hospital for, for, some, for some medicine usually and um, in most cases, you're able to get IV, and if not, IO access pretty quickly, uh, and you're going to give adenosine. Now, you, you try to get IV access uh, as close to the heart as possible, um, and you put a three-way tap on, and you give the adenosine 100 micrograms per kilogram per dose, um, with uh, attached up to a three-way tap with with a bolus of normal saline, and you 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 follow the adenosine with the normal saline immediately, and should be on. ECG monitoring all the way through that and the, and the ability to print out the ECG as well. That's really, really important. So if that doesn't work, give it a, give it a minute and, uh, and then give a, a, a higher dose of adenosine, 200 mics per kilogram, and if that doesn't work, up to 300 mics per kilogram. If that doesn't work, you should pause at this stage and just make sure, A, that you're giving it properly and that you've got a decent line in. But if, you, if you're happy that, that, that you are doing those things, then is it really SVT? Uh, especially if there's something, if there's some aberrancy, indeed, is this ventricular tachycardia that you're treating, or maybe you need, um, you, know, you know, the heart's quite refractory to it, and you need um, uh, some baseline medication in there, such as beta blocker, digoxin, amiodarone. But at this stage, you should pause and think to yourself, well, I should contact pediatric cardiology for further advice. 
Um, whereas if you're on the shock side of the algorithm, then if you have IV access or it's very, very quick to get that or get IO access, yes, you can give adenosine, but you know, you, you may be moving quite quickly down to a DC cardio version, which obviously very importantly has to be synchronized. So the aim of treatment in SVT is to get back into normal sinus rhythm and to stay in normal sinus rhythm. If you can manage that, the patient will get better. Um, and a little bugbear of mine is uh, constant questions about what dose of adenosine should I give next. If um, adenosine has, has even very briefly reverted somebody from SVT into, back into sinus rhythm, but then they go back into SVT, you don't then increase the dose of adenosine. You can if you want, but it won't make any difference. Uh, it's a, a misconception to think that adenosine, that a higher dose of adenosine keeps you out of SVT longer than, uh, than, uh, than an otherwise effective uh, dose of, uh, of uh, the lower dose of adenosine. Um, adenosine does not, uh, is not an antiarrhythmic in that sense. It blocks the AV node to try and reset the heart and get you, and, and, and to block the pathway and to get you back into uh, sinus rhythm. What do you do if the baby is shocked? Sorry, it is not shocked, but in congestive heart failure. And this, this is a relatively common one that you're, that you're likely in your career to come, to come uh, across. Um, we say a baby because uh, for the same reason we talked about atrial flutter, presenting when they're sick, the first time that, that a baby presents with SVT is likely to be when they are at, the, at their sickest because it won't have been recognized. Babies don't tell you that they've got palpitations. And they may well have been in it for hours and hours on end over, over periods of days uh, or even weeks. Um, and uh, when they arrive, they may have a large liver, be pale and be, uh, and be short of breath and pretty odematous. But that doesn't mean that they need a DC shock. Um, uh, but, but, they, but, 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 but the adenosine by itself may not be enough to get them out of it, or it, it may get them out of it, and then they go straight back in again. In that instance, I mean, an esmolol infusion um, uh, is certainly a possibility. Um, being a beta blocker, and if you haven't seen the echocardiogram, you may be not completely sure about the cardiac contractility. And also, esmolol does, does tend to make the blood pressure a little bit saggy. In its favor, it's very quick acting and therefore very safe. You, once you turn it off, it's out of the system within a few minutes. Um, Digoxin um, is not um, um, negatively inotropic and also doesn't tend to affect your blood pressure. But people have a, uh, are, are not so used to using it and, and the dose does need to be adjusted if there are other comorbidities such as renal dysfunction. And especially if, you, if you've already used amiodarone or you were thinking about amiodarone, you need to be careful using those two together. But uh, I would sometimes um, think about a, a, an IV loading dose of, of digoxin for that reason, and then going back to the adenosine. Ultimately, it's never very wrong to use amiodarone um, uh, as an IV loading dose. It doesn't necessarily commit you to months and months of amiodarone. Uh, and uh, being the domestos of all antiarrhythmics, it's, it's probably the most effective. But if you were sort of winning, uh, you know, um, getting, getting stuck in with, with an, uh, you know, with a loading dose of IV amiodarone without running that past anybody won't necessarily go down that well. Um, and as I've indicated before, once you've given one of these um, uh, antiarrhythmic treatments, the longer acting ones, you're more likely to be successful in cardioverting with adenosine.
doing you know two or three of these things can take several hours by the time you send ECGs backwards and forwards to cardiologists and the patient might be starting to get a bit saggy and uh, really need to get out of the SVT sooner rather than later. And certainly if amiodone hasn't worked, then I would uh, consider a DC cardioversion. Most times it, 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 you have enough um, uh, time and leisure to involve uh, you know, an anaesthetist and go to theatres and indeed, even the induction of anesthesia usually gets patients out of, S out of refractory SVT, but you might need to do a, a synchronized DC cardioversion. In this instance, 0.5 joules per kilogram often works, but, but you know, the guideline says one joule per kilogram. So keeping out of um, uh, SVT, as I said, adenosine just gets you out of it. It doesn't keep you out of it. In most cases, a beta blocker is good first-line treatment. So in a baby, propranolol, uh, in an older uh, uh, infant, you know, after after a few months, uh, and certainly in a child, more likely to be a tenolol. Uh, but if you need IV treatment uh, in the short term, the, the, the beta blocker to use is IV uh, esmolol. You can use metoprolol, but um, esmolol is so short acting and comes pre-prepared. Um, or you could use digoxin or even amiodarone. But I would be doing that in consultation with with a cardiologist. So moving on then to broad complex tachycardias. Um, the ones that would spring to mind obviously would be ventricular fibrillation and ventricular tachycardia. These are very rare, uh, certainly in early childhood. Uh, ventricular tachycardia can be a bit more common uh, in teenage years. Uh, but what's more likely actually is the patient has SVT with aberrancy. That's either they have Wolf-Parkinson-White and they have um, uh, antidromic conduction, i.e. the, the uh, the Wolf-Parkinson-White pathway is being conducted down that and then back up the uh, back up through the AV node, or it's going so fast that the that the AV node has uh, struggles to keep up and broadens out a little bit uh, with the SVT, or somebody who's known to have right bundle branch block and gets SVT will also have a broad complex tachy, or even sinus tachycardia in patients with right bundle branch block can be quite difficult to distinguish as well. So the history is very important here. Um, as I said, ventricular tachycardia and fibrillation are very rare. Um, so uh, if you have a history of past cardiac surgery, that's obviously very important, uh, both in the setting of having, having right bundle branch blocks, so therefore it may not be that big of an, of an issue, but you are more at risk, especially patients who, for example, had um, repair of tetralogy fallow or truncus arteriosus, those type of um, uh, conditions are, are more at risk of, of ventricular tachycardia. Is there a history of Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome? What medications are available in the house? Um, and is there a family history of sudden death, cardiomyopathy, channelopathy, those type of things? So just keep it clinical again. Um, you can see we have here a 13-year-old girl um, who's presented to the emergency department with palpitations. She feels very well. The palpitations last maybe 45 minutes uh, at a time when they come. And um, she's not really, she certainly hasn't been syncopal very occasionally presyncopal, and this has been going on for you know for several months. Um, so what you can see is that you can see a broad complex tachycardia. The rate is, is approximately 150 beats per minute, um, and you don't see any P waves. It's monomorphic, and you can see it's got a left bundle branch block. So it's got, it's got a right bundle branch block pattern. So this is uh, ventricular tachycardia coming from the left ventricles, probably it's probably left vesicular ventricular tachycardia, which on the whole tends to be uh, quite a stable type of tachycardia. But in this case, 
um, it's not that you're going to send the, send the girl home and tell her not to worry about it. Um, but you don't necessarily need to get, 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 get cracking with, you know, DC cardioversion. That would be crazy and somebody sitting staring at you. But you're going to admit them, put them on a monitor, talk to um, uh, pediatric cardiology. Um, and if you're in a district general hospital, it's difficult to get hold of us. This is well within the realms of, um, of an adult cardiologist. In fact, um, they're more used to treating ventricular tachycardia than any pediatric cardiologist, uh, uh, with the exception of an electrophysiologist stop. Um, they, um, but the likely treatment for this will be a beta blocker, uh, and sometimes in the future, um, uh, an electrophysiology study. So in this in, in in this instance here, this could be the same history, but um, the heart rate is a little bit faster, 160 beats per minute in this case, monomorphic. But in this instance, it, there is um, left bundle branch block. So this is um, right ventricular output tract tachycardia. And this tends to be a fairly benign type of ventricular tachycardia as well. Again, this is uh, this is uh, taken in the context of a of an otherwise well um, girl or boy uh, who doesn't have congenital heart disease, um, and there's no strong family history of notes. So you you have to factor all those things in as well in terms of your of your initial assessment. These patients are all going to end up getting an echocardiogram, halters, and I would again treat this with a beta blocker. Um, you, you could treat this with, with, with a calcium channel antagonist as well. Whereas this ECG is obviously very different. And where you have here is a very disorganized, very fast, broad, complex tachycardia. And this is ventricular fibrillation. And obviously this patient is not going to be walking off the street um, and telling you that they feel a little bit dizzy and have palpitations. This will, this will be a cardiac arrest um, rhythm. And you'll just follow the, the, um, the APLS guideline. But ultimately, these patients are going to require shock. This is obviously uh, an AED, but um, uh, yeah, they need, they need um, DC cardioversion. Just a couple of other ECGs um, to add a bit of interest. Uh, you can see here that there is a broad complex, relatively tachycardic, but 150 beats per minute again. Um, uh, but there are two distinct um, QRS morphologies, one, two, one, two, one, two. So it's, it's alternating. This is called bidirectional ventricular tachycardia. Now, it's not that you'd be blasé about this anyway, uh, but uh, this is specifically associated with, with CPVT, catecholaminergic um, paroxysmal ventricular tachycardia. And it, it, um, it, it, it is one of the leading causes of sudden cardiac death. Uh, in young people, mostly in the second decade of life, but it can be a, a, even a little bit earlier than that, but, but mostly in the second decade of life um, and um, leading cause of, well, one of the leading causes of sudden cardiac death with exercise. So this is, this is you know, if you, if you saw this, you'd certainly be admitting the patient and talking to us and uh, you'd be very worried about the patient as well. And th this will need immediate treatment. If the patient's sitting staring at you, you don't need to do an immediate DC cardioversion, obviously. So, Sort of looking through the APLS guidelines, if somebody has a broad complex tachycardia, which you're not sure what it is, it, it, it is permissible to try adenosine. Um, patients with ventricular tachycardia may well be looking at you um, not particularly symptomatic. So if they are, don't panic. Uh, but do contact us. You can send uh, an email or text the ECG to, to a friendly pediatric cardiologist. You could try magnesium sulfate. Uh, that can make you a bit hypotensive, but, but it's generally a very safe antiarrhythmic for ventricular arrhythmias. Um, 
if, if on the advice of the pediatric cardiologist, they think this is a fairly benign type of ventricular tachycardia, then you could try a beta blocker. But if the patient is symptomatic and you know, you're, you're worried about them at all, and, 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 and there isn't a very clear history, history of long QT syndrome, then loading with, 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 um, with amiodarone you know, you know, may well be the appropriate thing to do. Um, if you can't get them out of it and they're starting to get sick, then a synchronized um, a DC cardioversion, which will likely require uh, the help of a, gen of a general anesthesia, um, may also be appropriate. Obviously, if it's unstable ventricular tachycardia or the ventricular fibrillation, then you fo strictly follow the APLS guideline uh, on that, which is here for your benefit. And I won't go through that right now. So, too slow. Um, so we've covered all the all the tachyarrhythmias at a gallop. Um, on the slow side, um, tend to be a bit more relaxed about that, although it, it causes a lot of questions for a pediatric cardiologist. Um, but slow heart rates, you know, are less likely to to make you symptomatic, and you know, much less likely to be associated with sudden cardiac death. The majority are just sinus bradycardia. Um, which can, which is usually physiological. You know, if you look at the at that uh, table that I that I gave at the start, many many patients fall fall below the the uh, recommended heart rate or uh, for, you know, for their age, and therefore by definition they have sinus bradycardia. But that doesn't mean that they've got something wrong with them. So they may just be a very fit, healthy young person. Changes in vagal tone can can induce sinus bradycardia as well. And I suppose you want to be sure to yourself that that they don't have increased intracranial pressure, but there should be other signs of pathological things causing increased vagal tone. Um, does the patient have access to medications that they shouldn't have, such as digoxin, beta blockers would be more common, obviously, um, and antidepressants. Um, and then is it actually sinus, i.e., is it coming from the sinus node, or is it coming from an ectopic atrial pacemaker? So, uh, if you look at, at uh, lead one and, and, and lead two, it may well be, or sorry, lead ADF, it may well be down going and therefore coming lower down in the atria in the coronary sinus. And that would be the most common ectopic atrial pacemaker. But that's, that's really basically physiological as well. Or is there sinoatrial node disease? So are there big pauses? Is there sinus, sick sinus syndrome? So um, tachycardia followed by bradycardia um, inappropriately. Uh, and that, those things do require um, uh, ongoing uh, monitoring and, and occasionally a pacemaker. I just put in sinoatrial node um, exit block, um, really for completeness, you, you won't see that. I've never seen it. For all of those things on the bradycardia side, uh, which are coming from the, from the atria, a really important thing is how many symptoms are there? How pervasive are the symptoms? And is there chronotropic competence? Um, then it could be coming from the AV node, and that is a more important source of, of pathology for, uh, for causing bradycardia. If there's AV block, it can be first, second, third degree, which we all know about. First degree AV block is basically physiological, and they should have a normal heart rate. Second degree AV block has two types, Mobitz type 1, which is wanky back, has drop beats, whereas the uh, Mobitz type 2 is where there is a fixed relationship, a 2 to 1 AV block, 3 to 1 AV block, and it, it's a, so Mobitz type 2 along with complete heart block or third degree AV block um, are totally different from the others. This is high grade AV block which is definitely pathological and is much more likely to require um, a pacemaker in the long term. Um, 
What also adds into the mix in terms of um, how seriously you view these things, how much investigation they're going to get on the threshold for pacemaker uh, insertion is whether there's a history of, congest of, con of congenital heart disease or previous cardiac surgery. So here we have a three-year-old boy attends the emergency department having fractured his humerus. Uh, the nurse notes that his observations are relatively slow, especially considering that he should be in a fair amount of pain, but he, he, but he denies any other symptoms. So what you can see here is the QRS complex are pretty regular, it's about 70 odd beats per minute. Um, but, and, and there are P waves, but the PR interval, well, there's P here, P here, P here, P here, P here. When you, when you measure out the P, P interval, it's constant but the PR interval isn't. And there's obviously more than one P wave for every QRS complex, but it's not always the same number of P waves. So really, when the, the best way of doing this is to get a sheet of paper and mark on the P waves, and then slide it across to make sure that works. And then doing your PR, do, doing the same thing for the PR interval. That's, that's how I work out um, uh, what type of heart block it is. Um, and what you'll see here is that really there is no association between the P waves and the QRS complex. This is complete heart block. Um, so what would we do now? Well, this does not by itself necessarily need any treatment if he's not having any symptoms. So um, we'll, we'll, we'll look at the, at, the, um, at the European guidelines for pediatric uh, uh, permanent cardiac pacemaker in a minute, but you have a narrow QRS complex, you don't have any um, uh, wide um, ectopic QRS beats, and the heart rate is in, in the 70s. So on the face of it, this, this wouldn't require a, a pacemaker, and, but, but would need a workup as to why this, this has happened. Was this congenital? Has he had evidence of myocarditis? Is there a family history of this? Um, has he got a structurally normal heart? What's the function of his heart like as well? So it's not that obviously this patient is not going to get followed up, but they don't necessarily need any immediate treatment. The only blind point would be, how did he fracture his humerus? Was he syncopal and then he fell? Or is he, was he playing football or fell out of a tree, tree after having swung on it? You know, so, so, so the history is important here. Whereas this ECG here, you can see again, there's complete heart blocks so P, 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 and the PR interval changes. And um, you know, there's no association between it and the QRS complex. The QRS complex is nice and, uh, and narrow again. There don't seem to be any other QRS morphologies, but the rate here is a lot lower. The rate here, about seven and a bit boxes between um, the RR interval, and so the rate here is in the low 40s. And this, in a child, would score you a pacemaker. Um, here we can see uh, P dropped, P QRS, P QRS, P dropped, P QRS, P QRS, P dropped. But if you look at the PR interval here compared to here, it's shorter here than it is here. So this, this, this is quite clearly wanky back, uh, which is Mobitz, uh, sorry, uh, second degree AV block, Mobitz type one. And this is a relatively benign thing. In fact, most of us would have this during sleep. Having said that, again, you're going to investigate this to make sure there aren't higher grades of AV block going on at the same time. Completely different from Mobitz type two where you have here um, one P wave QRS, P, P, QRS. So two, P, two P's per QRS, but it's much slower as well. And the QRS complex is pretty wide. This is pretty nasty stuff, actually. 
And in this case here, not only is this child going to get a pacemaker, uh, but actually they may, this child in, in this instance here requires uh, you know, emergency temporary pacing, um, I would say, because the heart rate here is about 30 or so. Whereas in this instance here, you have P, P, QRS, P, P, QRS, P, P, QRS. So there's a two to one AV block, uh, but the heart rate he here is, is about um, you know, high 60s, 70, something like that. And this, this patient is much less likely to be symptomatic, um, but it's still high grade AV block. So you know, they, they may well end up with a pacemaker at some point down the line, uh, but we'll just need uh, further investigation and monitoring. So moving away from AV node disease to sinus node disease. So this is a, 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 the, the Holcomb monitor of an eight-year-old girl who has severe learning difficulties but she had a syncopal episode in the paddling pool. And um, so this occasioned quite a lot of poker monitoring. And um, now she wasn't symptomatic when she had this, but there's a 4.8 second pause followed by a 3.5 second pause. And this girl ended up getting a pacemaker. And the reason for that was because of this symptom of, of syncope in the paddling pool. And it, she had other reasons for, for, for having brief episodes of loss of consciousness. But if I could, rationalize that a pause like this could have happened in the paddling pool, then she could have died from drowning. So it's not that um, sinus node dysfunction by itself is very, very unlikely to kill you because of cardiac standstill. But if you're doing something that you then would become sinkable and injure yourself as a reason for that, then that might be a reason uh, to, uh, to put a pacemaker in. And that would be effective at stopping those pauses. These indications for a pacemaker, and this is, this is in uh, congenital AV block. This is just for your own reference. There aren't really any um, definite guidelines for uh, pacemaker insertion in sinus node dysfunction in, 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 in children. Um, uh, for some things, for example, in reflex noxic seizures where you will also get a sinus pause, I mean, people would be um, just as likely to, to, um, to let you have a pause for at least 10 seconds before considering putting a pacemaker in. But, the, the frequency and the nature of the symptoms do play a part uh, in, in, um, in whether or not you put a pacemaker in. Some, some parts of the guidelines would suggest that if you have a pause for over three seconds and it's sinus node dysfunction that you're, uh, and, uh, and there is general evidence of sinus node dysfunction that you may warrant a pacemaker. Um, this is just for your benefit to see somebody who's got long QT syndrome. You can see that there is a long QT interval here. And also this upsloping is very typical of long QT type 1. And just to measure the, the, um, the QTC, it's usually using Bazette's formula. Don't just read the computer-generated printout. Actually measure uh, the QTC. So just to summarize, um, it's important that you take time to look at the ECG, recognize the rhythm, but equally important to look at the patient's condition. How quickly do you need to act? And that's as important as what you need to do, i.e. what specific therapy. In SVT, adenosine is usually therapeutic, but it can be beneficial in terms of uncovering the rhythm even when it's not therapeutic. Nearly all types of SVT will benefit from, uh, from, from beta blocker. Um, in terms of broad complex tachycardias, much more likely, they're much rarer. They're much likely, much more likely to make you sick, but they're not always. So you don't necessarily have to panic, and that's why I say you should always look at the patient. Contact pediatric cardiology. 
you may uh, try uh, intravenous magnesium sulfate. Um, if the patient's very well, you could try beta blocker, but if the, if the patient is, is symptomatic or is decompensating in any way, then, then amiodarone is more likely to be beneficial. And in fact, you may even need to do a DC, card, a DC cardioversion. Um, bradycardia is much less likely to be fatal, much less likely to cause symptoms, to actually cause the symptoms. Patients may be symptomatic and be bradycardic, uh, but those are two different things. If it's AV node dysfunction, though, that is important if they are symptomatic and have an evidence of certainly of high-grade um, AV node dysfunction. Sinus node dysfunction um, is relatively uncommon, but certainly does happen in, in, in young people and is very rarely fatal. But it, but it can result in, in the insertion of a, of a permanent pacemaker. Thank you very much. Happy to take any questions.